Thank you, Marin. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Second Chronicles chapter seven. Second Chronicles chapter seven in our Bibles this morning. I hope you'll join us tonight. It'll be a good time. Marin's husband is a state representative for uh, state of Michigan within the state of Michigan, and he will be speaking tonight for just about fifteen minutes or so, bringing a challenge to us tonight as we gather around in the shade of, I think, a big maple tree there behind the Jack's house. And uh, before we eat our hot dogs and those sort of things, so I hope you'll be here tonight, um, not here, be at the Jack's farm tonight and enjoy fellowshipping together and worshiping the Lord and just celebrating uh, this weekend and all that it all that it uh, reminds us of and holds for us. Second Chronicles chapter seven, there is going to be a brief meeting for those of you going on the Peru trip. Of course, you know, you're leaving on Wednesday morning. Uh, but you might have some questions, and Pastor Scott has all of those answers for you, and so uh, he'll want to meet with you just briefly. Where do you want to meet, Pastor Scott? In the choir room? All right, so make sure you meet there with him just briefly. Um, the song that Marin just sang really is a song, a prayer of revival, isn't it? Uh, stem the tide, Lord, uh, taking responsibility for wickedness. Uh, disobedient sinfulness within our nation. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Do you ever find yourself praying for our nation? And if you do, do you find yourself confessing um, the national sin or the sin of our nation? Do you ever find yourself praying that way? Maybe, I don't just mean praying, Lord, would you please be merciful to our country? This is a sinful country. A disobedient country, a rebellious country, but I mean actually taking responsibility for the sin and ownership of the sin. I think sometimes we as believers, when we pray for our nation, we think of our nation as at least as far as wickedness being separate from ourselves. Um, but as the song was sung, it's a song of taking responsibility and ownership. And it's not the only time that I've heard that. In fact, we may look at it this morning. Daniel does that in the book of Daniel. Daniel takes responsibility for the sin of Judah. And uh, he hadn't lived in Judah in many, many, many years. I would say maybe 60 years or so. And we find that Daniel is taking responsibility and ownership for the sin of the, the people of Judah not just when he was taken into captivity as a boy, but also now having been in Babylon for all those many years. And uh, he reads the prophecy of Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Daniel. And he realizes what's happening and why it's happening, and he takes ownership of it. And I really believe we as God's people need to do that. Um, I want you to know this morning that God's blessing is still available for the United States of America. I want you to know that. Um, I praise God for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I I praise God for that. Um, And yet, even while I praise him for that, there are other things that are taking place. No doubt you've read headlines. Maybe you don't read the entire articles or maybe you've watched shows where things are highlighted of wickedness within our land. Abraham Lincoln once said this, he said, quote, if America should fall, it should be toppled by a destroyer named us, end quote. So America has never been a perfect nation, 
Uh, but it is true that America has decayed morally and societally and culturally. Um, and so the question I have this morning is, is there anything God's people can do about it? Maybe there are times where you felt helpless. Maybe there are times where you felt grieved by the sin of our nation. And maybe knowing enough of the word of God, you realize that there are consequences for sin. That's true in an individual's life. And it's also true in, the, in a family. It's also true in, the, in a state. It's, it's true for a nation. And maybe you've at times, as you found yourself grieved or mourning over the sin of our nation and the, the impending judgment of God upon our nation, maybe you found yourself grieving and hopeless, thinking there's nothing that you can do. And so the question I have is, well, is there anything that you and I can do about it? At the uh, Reagan Presidential Library in California, my wife and I had the privilege of going there years ago and... Um, uh, out, in, out in California, we were there, we, we toured the, the library, and they had a number of different things about President Reagan, of course, and there's a copy of a Bible there that once belonged to his mom, and President Reagan used that Bible when he took the oath of office at his first inauguration, and the Bible is open to Second Chronicles chapter 7, which we're going to read this morning in verse number 14. The very same passage to which it was opened when he took the oath of office on January 20th, 1981. And the verse is underlined as Cindy and I looked at the Bible and I thought it was interesting where it was open to. And I thought it was interesting that this verse in particular was underlined in that Bible. And in the margins of the Bible, there was handwritten this note, quote, a most wonderful charge for the healing of the nations. Um, a most wonderful charge, command, for the healing of the nations. I want to see what President Reagan thought was a wonderful command for the healing of the nations. And is it possible for a nation to be healed? Look at our passage, verse 12. The Bible says, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence upon my people. So verse 13 is talking about the judgment of God upon the people of Israel if they turn away from worshiping the Lord. He says in verse 14, he gives the people of Israel um, something that they can do to change uh, the judgment of God into God's blessing. Look at verse 14, and here's what President Reagan considered to be this charge of God for the healing of the nations. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray... And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And then in verse 15, he writes, now mine eyes or God says, now mine eyes shall be open. He's watching to see if this is done. And mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. 
Now, I want to say right up front before we pray that this, these are the words of God given to King Solomon, the king of Israel, to God's chosen people, the people of Israel. And I do not mistake for a moment that uh, the United States of America is not the nation of Israel. Okay, And I want to point that out. However, this is a verse of revival. This is a, a verse of promise to God's people um, when they have strayed away from the Lord. And it is, a, in that sense, a generic promise specific to God's chosen people, the people of Israel, but generic to, in the sense of God's people, when they have disobeyed the Lord, and it is a principle, a generic principle, that if we will repent of sin, that God will give mercy and blessing. And there is application in that sense for us. So this is not a verse specific to the nation of the United States. But it is a verse given to God's people. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now there are some people under the sound of my voice whose lives are broken. And perhaps you are facing, facing the chastening hand of God in your life specifically. Maybe in your marriage. Maybe in the bringing up of your children. Maybe it could be applied to a church. Uh, I'm speaking to believers primarily this morning, and, and there are some homes and there are some individuals and we certainly are a nation that need God to work and to be merciful and to be gracious and to have mercy upon us. And there's initiatives that we can take found for us in verse 14 and I want to explore them this morning. Let's pray. Let's ask God's blessing upon our study of his word and then let's look at what we can do as Americans in our day. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us, teach us by your word, I pray. There are many under my voice this morning who love this land, but we have not come today to worship this land. We've come to worship you. And yet, Lord, we come, we come as you know us to be. You know our frame. We often fail you. Uh, we fall short, yet you have saved us, you have loved us, you care for us, you suffer long with us. And Father, there are times when we don't know what to do, and some of us have given up entirely, um, even stopped caring, and sometimes we pretend it's spiritual, we're trying not to worry and not care, and yet, Lord, I do think we ought to care if you turn your back upon our nation and you bring judgment upon our nation, we ought to be concerned. And so, Father, but what should we do? You don't want us to worry. You don't want us to live in fear. You don't want us to worship this land and this nation. So what should we do? And Lord, I pray that you teach us and may these verses, this verse, verse 14, be true in our lives. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, 
just to give you a little bit of the context of what's happening here in chapter 7, and you might look back to chapter 5 in your Bibles. I'm not going to read it, but you might read it as I speak. In verse number 1, Solomon had completed the construction of what's called in verse 1 of chapter 5, the house of the Lord, which was the temple. And you see in verse number 14 of chapter 5 that the Ark of the Covenant had been brought into the most holy place. You see that in verse 14 of chapter 5. King Solomon then offered a prayer of dedication in chapter 6. I think it's over in verse number 12. And it goes all his prayer goes from verse 12 all the way down through verse number 42. And King Solomon, you can imagine this, the king of a nation is offering a prayer of dedication to a temple, the dwelling place of God, a place where God's people will worship the Lord. You can imagine being a part of a nation like this. Okay, and King Solomon prays. Chapter 7 now is where we'll be in our text. Chapter 7 tells us of the sacrifices that were offered as Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord in verse 5. And in verse 7, the Bible says that he hallowed specific parts of the temple. And the events concluded with a seven-day feast of celebration, verses 8 and 9. So all of Israel is celebrating. They're feasting. They're dedicating uh, this temple to the Lord. God is going to dwell amongst them within the temple. Verse number 10 of chapter 7 describes an atmosphere of exhilaration. Amongst God's people, there's jubilation as the people return to their tents. They're praising God. They're they're excited because God is going to dwell in their midst and they're going to have God's protection and they're going to have God's provision and they're going to have God's blessing. And then in verse number 12, God appears to Solomon at night. And he addresses the possibility with King Solomon that God's people, the nation of Israel, might turn away From him, or when they turn away from him. And if God's people should turn away from from the Lord, God gives instruction to King Solomon what God's people need to do. Have you ever turned away from the Lord personally? Yes or no? I'm going to ask that again. Have any of you personally ever turned away from the Lord? Yes or no? Yes. All right. Has our nation, is our nation following the Lord? What do you think? No. It's interesting, the Roe v. Wade uh, decision, though I believe it to be right and accurate constitutionally, and I'm very, very thankful for it, it does turn the authority of decisions like that back into the hands of the representatives and therefore the people of the United States of America. Now, that's the way our government is designed to operate, but moral decisions depend upon moral people. And um, I know that our country is not a moral people. Now, that being said, there are many of God's people that make up the citizenship of the United States of America. And And so there are opportunities for people to do what is right and do what is biblically accurate and and do what is right for the Lord in their conscience before the Lord. So there is opportunity to do what is right. So for that for that to that end, I'm very thankful for the decision to overturn that Roe v. Wade. But a, a, 
a godly country is only as godly as their citizens are. Immoral people are only as moral as their citizens are. It is true, our country needs a great awakening, desperately. Now, God has sent those in the past, and he could send another. Our hope is not in the United States of America. Our glory is not, our honor is not in the United States of America. I think we are stewards of it. I think we are responsible. And to that end, I think we ought to care. I I think it ought to burden our hearts at times. Because we are a part of this group of people at this time in history. So I think we ought to care. Um, I don't think we ought just to go through life like, you know what, I'm not a part of this. (laughs) I don't think that would be the right or responsible or honest thinking on the part of any one of us in this room. But our glory is not in the United States. Our hope is not in the United States. Our hope is in the Lord. And God lays out for Solomon a four-step initiative for God's people to follow if they turn away from him, if they turn away from the Lord, and if, therefore, God stops blessing them as a country. You see it in verse number 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and now comes the four-step initiative, what God's people can do during times of spiritual decline, when a situation is desperate, God's people need to be desperate, but not hopeless, but desperate for God. When a situation is desperate, God's people need to be desperate for God. In 2020 and um, over the past couple of years, at times, I've seen God's people desperate. And I'm talking worried and full of anxiety and full of fear. And I felt some of that in my own heart. That is not godliness. That is not faith. I've seen others who are careless. (laughs) You know, it's going to happen. You know, I don't find that honorable either. Um. What should a dad do if he finds ungodliness in his home? Should he be careless? What should a dad do if he finds ungodliness in his children? Should he be careless? Well, not me. No, I don't think so. I think a dad should be desperate for the Lord to work. I think a mother should be desperate for the Lord to work. And as American citizens, I think we ought to be desperate for the Lord to work. It's not the all-consuming thing. It's not the only thing we ever think about or pray for. But I think there ought to be a desperation for God to work. It is true that God alone has been our help as a nation in ages past. And it is true that he alone is our hope for anything good that will come. So I've mentioned verse 14 is a four-step initiative. The word initiative By that, I mean the readiness and the willingness to take steps of action when something desperately needs to be done. To take initiative. My dad used to talk to me about that. Seth, take initiative. (laughs) Well, I'd like to let somebody else do it. 
I'd like to just stand back and let somebody else do it. Somebody else. And in fact, sometimes it's easy to point fingers and say, well, why don't they do something about this? Or why are they doing this? Or why are they doing that? And there's plenty of things that you and I could look at and say, well, why are they doing that? Or why do they let that happen? And yet I'm saying to you this morning that we as God's people need to take initiative. Now, in what way can we take initiative? And I'll give you four actions that God gave to his people that he loved when they walked away from the Lord. First of all, take the initiative to humble yourself. Take the initiative to humble yourself. Now, there may be some in our day who would have the attitude or say, there is nothing that I can do about what is happening in our nation. And I'm telling you this morning, I do not believe that is true. I do not believe that is true. And we and some would say, well, the some people are uh, some people would say the, the votes don't even count or the bureaucracy has gotten so big or the federal government has gotten so big or there's repre- there's there's uh, 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 there's no representation in our day. OK, and, and maybe. People may feel that way. There may be certain truth to some of those things and other concerns and worries people have. But I believe that God is bigger than any of those things. Okay, the Bible tells us that God holds the heart of the king in his hand and he turneth it whithersoever he will. God raises up nations and he puts down nations. Okay. The, the, the greatest superpowers that ever uh, were on the face of the earth, God allowed them to rise to power and God removed the power from them. And that is in and, and that God is your Lord and your savior. He lives within you. He listens when you pray. He, by his spirit, convicts you and encourages you and goes with you every step of every day. As one of his children, he loves you. And there is something that God's people can do. And he's talking to God's people in verse 14 where he says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. Humble themselves. And so take the initiative to humble yourself. The first step, uh, the first initiative is humility. Humbling ourselves. Pride is something that God hates. Pride is something that God hates, and yet it's something that every single one of us in this room struggle with. Um, Some call it the root of all sin. I've heard it called that. Pride is a critical spirit. Pride pride is a disobedient spirit. Pride is um, hearing the truth and disobeying the truth. Pride is is putting oneself first. Pride is considering oneself to be the authority on you fill in the blank. Maybe a lot of things. A proud person has the hardest time being thankful. The proud person is not satisfied. Not satisfied with a spouse. Not satisfied with children. Not satisfied with parents. Not satisfied with fellow believers not satisfied with whatever's taking place in their life. It wouldn't matter where you put a proud person at in history. 
the proud person would be critical. Okay, the proud person is someone that God resists. The book of James tells us that, that God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And so it's interesting here as God talks to Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, God comes to Solomon and he says, in the event that your people turn away from me and I send pestilence and I send famine and I send destruction upon them, there's something that God's people can do and it starts with humbling themselves. Stop being so critical. Stop being so angry about everything. Start receiving it as being from the hand of Almighty God. And you say, well, no, it's not from God. It's from that person. God allowed that person to do that. Start accepting it as being from God's hand. And stop putting our focus so much on individuals and start looking to the Lord. The evidence of pride is prayerlessness. James chapter 4 teaches us that. Ye have not because ye ask not. You fight in war. There's bickering and quarreling. But you don't have because you don't ask. The evidence of pride is prayerlessness, disobedience to God's commands, disagreement with God's instruction. The evidence of pride would be a fear of man, being afraid. The evidence of humility is submission. To God, obedience to his word, a sweet spirit, joy in the midst of trials, hope, assurance, prayerfulness, prayerfulness, praying always. And we each have a responsibility to humble ourselves according to, to God in this passage. In James chapter four, the Bible says in verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Humble yourselves, each one of us. Our world lives to be to be exalted, to exalt themselves. God says, lower yourself, and God says that he will lift you up. While the word, world clamors to lower others, to lift themselves, God says, lower yourself, and I'll lift you. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, the Bible says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Of course, he's writing to believers who were suffering. You remember our study in 1 Peter. God's hand is mighty. He's allowed things into your life. He has you right where he wants you. Humble yourself under his mighty hand that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. A biblical definition of humility is a proper view of self based upon a proper view of God. Romans 12 and verse 3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So think honestly. Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, wrote this, quote, he said, Welcome everything that helps you on toward humility. Welcome everything that helps you on toward humility. Todd, did I have a good softball game last time we played? 
we're get, we need to preach on truth. I did not. No, it wasn't. I was like 0 for 7, Pastor Scott. I mean, it's a big ball. It could have been a beach ball, and I couldn't have hit the thing. I popped out. I don't think I lined out. I hit soft rollers, you know, for like four-year-olds learning in T-ball how to catch. My ankles hurt. My back hurt. My whole body hurt. It was humiliating. One of the guys afterwards said, are you okay? Everything on me hurts, but nothing as much as my pride hurt. And that's the truth. Nothing as much. You know, take it as being from the Lord. Lord, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that. Shellacking, whooping, humiliation. Thank you for that. And you know what? It could be something as, as silly as a softball game. We know where overweight males run around thinking they're children. Or it could be something more serious in life. It could be a relationship that's not what you want it to be. And maybe it's not what God wants it to be. It could be a ministry that's not producing like you thought it was going to. And you've poured so much of yourself into it. And it's not yielding the fruit that you thought it was going to yield. It could be your stage in life and you had other plans. And yet here you are. And this is not how you planned this stage of your life to be. And there's it's there it's humiliating it's humiliating it's disappointing and and Andrew Murray and I agree with what he says he says welcome everything that helps you on toward humility the world says go out there and be your best you and be a success if you have to knock a few people off the side to make yourself a success or if you need to belittle a few other people around you. To make yourself look and appear to be better uh, so you feel better, go ahead and do it. And, and God's, God's structure is completely different. Welcome everything that helps you on toward humility. He goes on to say, quote, the first and chief mark of the relationship of man with God, the secret of blessedness is the humility and nothingness that leaves God free to be all. So, Lord, it's okay. Lord, thank you for the failure. Thank you for reminding me who I am so I can rejoice in who you are. And, and, and as God speaks to King Solomon about King Solomon's people, and God knew that King Solomon's people under King Solomon's reign, and many times again and again and again throughout the history of the nation of Israel, they were going to exalt themselves and they were going to take pride in who they were. And, and to this day, Jewish people, the nation of Israel is an amazing nation. The things that they develop, the things that they invent, the things that they accomplish are truly amazing. They're astonishing. It's an amazing nation. They're a small nation compared to the United States, but they are an amazing nation. But to this day, Israel still struggles to take pride in themselves. And I'm not pointing fingers at them because every other nation on the face of the earth does the same thing with much less accomplishments. In America, we sing about from sea to shining sea and we think about how grand the, the, the uh, topography and landscape of America is. We think about the wealth of the United States of America. Uh, 
we also have a lot of debt. Uh, we, we think about the ingenuity of America. We think about the power and the might of the United States of America. And there are times where we can look at the red, white, and blue, and we can say, wow, that's an amazing nation. It's a powerful nation. I'm proud to be an American. And I'm not ashamed to be an American. I'm thankful to be have been born in this nation. I am. I am thankful for this country. I'm thankful for how it was birthed. I'm thankful for many of the things that it overcame. I'm thankful for the times where it was able, in humility, to be able to acknowledge these things are taking place in our country, within our borders, and they are not right. And we are going to do whatever it takes to stop that. I am thankful for that. But we ought not take pride in America. We ought to humble ourselves. We also need to pray. Look at the text, verse 14. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. And then he says, and pray. Pray. Take the initiative to pray. How often do you pray? How often do you pray? Do you pray breakfast, lunch, and dinner? You say, well, I forget lunch sometimes. Do you pray in the morning when you wake up? Do you ask the Lord for help? Do you ask him for wisdom? Do you ask him for forgiveness? This is prayer. The, the biblical definition for, for praying in the Bible is asking, asking. And, and these people, God knew, were going to turn away from him. He knew in their pride they were going to stop asking. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. In 1 John chapter 5, the Apostle John wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He said, and this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. The Bible speaks often of prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Look over with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3. While you're turning there, I'll read from Psalm 40. He says, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Thou art my help. He's praying, and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O oh my God. Don't, don't hold. Don't wait, Lord. We need your deliverance now. Psalm 86 and verse 1 says, Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. There are characteristics of, of prayer and revival praying all through the Bible. In Daniel chapter 9, we find that Daniel's been in captivity all of his life. And you know about Daniel, right? You, uh, he, wouldn't eat the, he wouldn't eat the king's meat. He wouldn't eat the king's drink as just a young fellow. Um, he was going to obey the Lord and God blessed him. And you say, I think I say that God blessed him, but he was still in captivity. He wasn't with his mom and dad. He wasn't with his people in that sense. He wasn't within the culture that he had been born into. He was in, he's in, uh, he's in Babylon. He's in captivity as a result of what God had warned King Solomon of. And, uh, Daniel, you remember, he won't, bow down, or excuse me, he won't, he won't stop praying to the Lord. He won't stop bowing down to the Lord. Even when an edict is passed that 
people can only pray to uh, the, the king and cannot pray to any other god. And he, he won't stop. He's in, in the lion's den. You know, this is Daniel. And in, in verse number one of chapter nine, you, you read here about in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the, the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the, of the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah was a contemporary with Daniel. God had given Jeremiah the words to write. He had penned them down. That word comes to Daniel. Daniel reads it. And Daniel begins to comprehend why he is in captivity. Why God had allowed the Babylonians to take them into captivity. And Daniel, I can imagine, is thinking about this is my whole life. It's because they have turned their backs on the Lord God of Israel. It's because they have followed idols after their own making and their own creation. It's because of their their fornication and their wickedness. It's because of their disobedience against the Lord God Almighty. And here I am. This has been my whole life. And then I imagine Daniel begins to look around, now understanding why it is that he's been in captivity and why it is that God, Jehovah God, who he worships and loves, has given the people of Israel to go or Judah into captivity. And, uh, and Daniel, you know what he does? He takes ownership. I think, I think, too, by the way, he would have looked around and considered the spiritual maturity of the Jews, specifically the Judeans, in Babylonian captivity at that time. And, and guess what Daniel saw? Nothing had changed. They were wicked, still, idolaters, still. And and Daniel, as he he considers these things, look how he prays in verse 3. He says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him and to them that keep His commandments. We, notice that pronoun there, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Now it's interesting in the Bible, when you look at Bible characters throughout the Word of God, most of them you find something dreadfully wrong with. I mean, Daniel is a man for God's own heart, but Daniel was an, adul- uh, an adulterer and a murderer. Okay, the Apostle Paul was an amazing person, right? He was a, uh, an intellect. He was a scholar. He was bold and courageous. God gave him much of the New Testament, us, the much of the New Testament through the Apostle Paul. And yet the Apostle Paul was a man who rebelled against God as an unsaved man in resisted the Lord Jesus Christ and hated Jesus, okay? Uh, Peter denied Jesus three times, okay? So we see the humanity of people throughout the word of God. But Daniel, you don't find anything negative ever said about Daniel. And yet here I find, well, Daniel was not an adulterer. He was not a murderer, He never denied the Lord. And yet here I find Daniel 
taking ownership of the sin of his people. And I tell you, Trinity Baptist Church, this is something that we need to do. Now, if you're a born-again child of God, God calls you a saint. He's taken all your sins away from you. You will never be judged for your sin, okay? Jesus Christ was judged for your sin, and in return, he gave to you and to me, he gave to us his righteousness. So we are the children of Almighty God, and he is our Father. So we are blessed people. And yet, even as blessed people, citizens of heaven, the children of God, indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are citizens of this country in 2022. And it is very important that we take ownership for the wickedness of our people. Our wickedness. Our people. And that is what Daniel does. We have sinned in verse 5. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. That is the emphasis. We have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments Neither have we hearkened, in verse 6, unto thy servants, the prophets. We haven't hearkened, not just listened, but we haven't submitted ourselves to the words of yours, is what he's saying, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at, at, at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them. He's saying this, is, this wickedness is still happening and there's confusion because of it, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. He's saying we deserve this confusion. I don't need to. We don't have a king. And he's talking about the confusion of faces that his kings, their kings had. I'm not, we don't have to talk about our president. Okay. And confusion, what may or may not be there. There's confusion amongst a, a leadership, political leadership in our day. And not just political voted in leadership, but I mean leadership in general in our world not being able to uh, explain or define what a woman is. That's confusion. Daniel, a very godly man, says, we have sinned. Lord, I'm a part of it. And there's humility in that. It's not just a matter of, yeah, those people are so terrible. They are ridiculous. Then we can talk about them and we can... Uh, expose them and, and we can ridicule and mock them. That There's no godliness in that. People that the Lord died to save just like he died to save you and me. Now, I'm not saying to defend ungodliness or wickedness, but I am saying, and I see this in Daniel, an example to us. And now he's asking, verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. I'm going to turn back to Second Chronicles, and I'll let you continue reading in Daniel another time.
But we need to take an initiative to pray. In Daniel there, he prayed with supplications. That's sincere and earnest. Earnest. Sincere. He wasn't careless. Well, it's what God's going to do is he's going to do. No, no, no. I don't see that. I don't see that. Nor do I see him worrying and fretting either. But sincere and earnest supplications and with fastings. Fastings. What is fasting? Fasting is, you say fasting is being hungry. No, fasting is maybe for a meal or for two meals or for a day while saying, staying, continuing to drink water. But going without a meal or two or maybe more than that. Your body cries out, give me something. And you say, no. I'm going to go without something that is needful because physically, I'm going to go without something that's needful physically to me because I am seeking something that is more needful to me spiritually. I'm valuing what is spiritual more than what is physical. Now, we're not talking about harming ourselves physically, but when is the last time any of us have fasted? You remember the disciples in the New Testament, and they're unable to cast out the evil spirits, and, and they come to Jesus and say, why couldn't we do it? They've been able to do other miracles, and he said, this kind only comes by prayer and fasting. When's the last time any of us have fasted? And, and, and God tells Solomon, he says, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves, that's agreeing with God about whatever is happening in our lives, and pray, and now he says, and seek my face. Seek my face. And this is a change. Seek my face. And he's talking about worshiping the Lord alone. Worshiping God alone. A biblical definition of worship is the response of one who is overwhelmed with God and lives with the conscious awareness of his presence. So when fearful things happen, I'm living in a conscious awareness of his presence, and so I'm able to not fear, because I am worshiping the Lord, as opposed to crumbling and falling apart. When something vexes me and angers me or is offensive to me, the person who is worshiping the Lord, who is, stayed, who is seeking the Lord, that person is able to overcome and not fall into the fit of fury and rage attacking others who maybe even love him or love her around them because their mind is fixed upon the Lord and they know that God has allowed this to happen and they don't need, it doesn't all depend upon them. And so there's a fear of the Lord, but not a fear of man. There's a praise and adoration for God. There's a living for his glory. There's rejoicing, hoping in the Lord. There's being satisfied in him. This is worship. This is seeking God's face instead of seeking all that this world offers. Psalm 29 and verse 2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory, the praise, the honor due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 95 and verse 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Psalm 96 and verse 9 says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. 
There are different elements of worship. There's adoration. That's recognizing who God is. Thou art God alone. Psalm 86 and verse 10, the latter part says. It focuses, adoration focuses on the person of God, who he is. Uh, uh, Worship includes praise. That's recognizing what God is like. In Psalm 86 and verse 10, he says, Thou art great. That's focusing on the attributes of God. You are great. You know everything. God, you're everywhere at once. You're all powerful. You are you, you, you are Alpha and Omega. You're the beginning and the end. You are uh, you know no ends. You have no beginning. You have no end. Uh, you have all wisdom. It all belongs to you. Lord, you know who I am. You love me. You care for me. Nothing happens in my life without your working it and allowing it and doing it for purposes that are high and glorious and honorable. God, I trust you. You see, this is this is a heart of worship. And within worship, there's thanksgiving. In that Psalm, Psalm 86 and verse 10, the middle part, he says, Thou doest wondrous things. Worship recognizes what God is doing. God is doing something. And by the way, he is doing something in our nation. Will it result in awakening? I don't know. Will it result in revival amongst God's people? Revival, again, re, the prefix re means again. Vive means life, to live again. Revival is not for the unsaved. Revival is for God's people who have been made alive, but who have walked away from the Lord, whose walk with God has grown cold or dark, to live again, to be revived. Are we praising him? Are we worshiping him? And, and, and God tells Solomon, hey, if, if I begin to bring judgment upon you, God's people need to humble themselves. And they need to pray. They need to pray again. And they need to begin to seek my face again. You know, when, when God came to Solomon, you know, there's this, this, there's this rejoicing going on. There, there's the whole, whole nation is full of excitement around Jerusalem. People are going back to their tents and their homes, and they're just full of jubilation. They're just so thrilled. God is dwelling with us. But there came a point where they were like, eh, big deal. We've got to go make more sacrifices. We've got to go worship him again. You know how much this is costing me to worship him? He asked so much of us. You know, I'd rather have some of the gods of this world. You know, I mean, their God doesn't require this of them. And they forgot about the God who had brought them out of out of Egypt. They had forgotten about the God who had divided the Red Sea and they had walked across on dry ground. They'd forgotten about the God who provided them with manna from heaven. They'd forgotten about the God who had crushed Pharaoh. They'd forgotten about the God who had broken down the walls of Jericho when they just walked around and blew their trumpets. They'd forgotten about God and his deliverance. And he says, when you forget, you need to start. You need to turn back to me humbly, prayerfully, worshipfully. And then look at finally in verse number 14, he says, and turn from their wicked ways. He's talking about repentance. Take the initiative to repent. A biblical definition of repentance is when an individual becomes so sorry for his sin that he is willing to change. 
How sorry do we have to be before we will change? I'm not talking about our nation. I'm not talking about the Democrats. I'm not talking about the Republican Party. I'm not talking about the politicians. I'm not talking about the unsaved Americans. I'm talking about God's people. I'm talking about talking about teenagers who are saved, who know the Lord, who have godly parents who are seeking them to train them up in the way that they should go. But I'm talking about teenagers who profess to be saved, but have no love for the Lord and will do everything they possibly can to get out of the gathering with God's people. Or I'm talking about parents who, in an effort maybe to appease our own children, are turning away from the Lord, or maybe hidden sins within our own homes. Maybe nobody else in our home even knows about it, but we know about it. I'm talking about us. He says, turn. If you begin to sense God's judgment upon your life and upon your nation, you turn. You turn away from your wicked ways. Stop calling evil good and good evil. Stop setting wicked things before our eyes. Maybe, maybe this is why there is such a hopelessness amongst God's people within our nation, for our nation. Maybe it's because we know that there is such wickedness in our own homes that we cannot expect God to bless our country because of us. Take initiative to repent. If we walk in the light, see is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's in James where he says, where God says, draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. God's people, you and I can have revival today. Today. We are as close to God as we want to be. Now, again, this passage is written to the nation of Israel. But I believe there's a principle for God's people. It's not written to America, but there are many people within the, the borders of this great country who profess to know the Lord. And if we will, he says in verse 15, or end of verse 14, he says, Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I don't know what would happen if God's people corporately repented of sin, stopped defending sin, became broken over their sin, and did the initiatives in verse 14. I don't know what would happen. But I know what will happen if we do not. We will not have God's blessing.
So my exhortation to us this morning is, let us follow the initiatives of verse 14. Let us humble ourselves, let us pray, let us worship, and let us repent. I'm going to close with this. Eleven years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence on the final day of the Constitutional Convention, it was September 17, 1787. The elderly statesman Benjamin Franklin sat quietly. He was an old man at that time, and he was in severe pain. Sometimes he had to be carried along. Other times he would struggle to walk down the cobblestone streets. And he had said almost nothing throughout the convention. And on that last day, several members of the convention approached Mr. Franklin to ask him what he thought about what they had accomplished. Mr. Franklin responded by saying that he had been pondering a wooden carving on the back of a chair in the room. And it was, it was, it was a carving of a sun um, that was either setting or rising, and it had rays, sunbursts that had been carved into the back of the speaker's chair. And Benjamin Franklin posed a question that day. He said, he said, was it a rising sun or was it a setting sun? And he said, considering what we have, gentlemen, it is a rising sun. And I would ask you this morning, what is your perspective on America? Is it a rising sun or is it a setting sun? And I would ask you that about your family, too. Are there good days ahead for your family? What, what would you say? I mean, biblically. Can, are you in a position where you can expect God's blessing upon your family? Is it a rising sun or a setting sun? Whether it is a rising or a setting sun is dependent upon God and his blessing. We all know that. But God's blessing is dependent upon us. He always blesses his word. And so when you and I as his people, we put ourselves under his word, we have his blessing. It doesn't mean life is always easy. It doesn't mean there won't be trials and testing of our faith. But a place of blessing. And you know, that's where I want to be. That's where I want you to be. Second Chronicles 7-14 is a call for God's people to return to humility and prayer and worship and repentance. And the question is only... Will we humble ourselves? Will we pray? Will we worship God alone? And will we turn away from our sin? Because if we will, we can expect that God will hear from heaven and will forgive our sin. It's an Old and New Testament principle. And there have been many of us in this room who have enjoyed this, who have wandered away from the Lord and yet turned back to the Lord in humility and God has raised us up time and time again. And I tell you this this morning, he will do it again because that's who he is. May we respond how we ought to. Would you pray with me?